Vincennes was wide open. It was a frontier town, more or less. Uh, hippies would come, and uh, there was a French there. The Chinese were there, red Chinese. The North Vietnamese were there. The communist Laos were there. Everybody was there. We all drank in the same bars, and, and outside of town, we all shot at each other. Welcome back to the live drop. In this episode, we take flight with the CIA's clandestine airline, Air America, with pilot Neil Hansen, who began his aviation career as a pilot for Teamster boss Jimmy Hoffa. He then spent more than a decade in Southeast Asia as a captain for Air America, the CIA's airline that operated during the Vietnam era and the secret war in Laos. Upon returning to the States, unable to let go of the thrills of high-stakes flying, his career trajectory veered off course into a federal prison for smuggling narcotics. Neil talks about the history of Air America, the world's most shot-at airline that could go anywhere, anytime, especially where military wasn't allowed. He talks about his relationship to the customer, the CIA, and clarifies the daring, diverse, and patriotic culture of Air America pilots and crew. And look for him to explain terms like sticky brick, black pearl, hard rice, the customer, and nickel turns. Neil has a book, Flight, written with co-writer Luann Groskup, an Air America pilot story of adventure, descent, and redemption. Available now, begin transmission. I'd like to ask you what your experience was writing with a co-writer, and uh, was it at all like having a, a co-pilot? No, no, I'd had this pretty well all written down. I had about 400 pages written down, and Luan came to Air Venture here in Oshkosh and heard me speak there, which I've been doing that for five years. And uh, she says, you need to write a book. And I said, well, I have, but I can't afford to get it self-published. And she's kind of tongue-in-cheek, wanted to take a look at it like she expected it to be garbage. But uh, I got a call <laughs> a few days later, and oh, no, uh, we have to get an agent now. And she did. She found an agent, and the agent, of course, found a publisher, and it's gone onward and upward. Luan took and filled in some of the, the main thing was the hook in the front. And I'd never spoken about the time I'd been incarcerated or that part of my life. And uh, she got me to open up on that. And uh, I think that did flesh it out fully. So the Buddha pen was, was Luan's idea. Finding no, that in the jacket. It's right there. She's got it on. You've that was always it. on my uniform. I mean, that was the opening of the opening of the book. You're reaching into this 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 jacket of yours, and you get your finger mm -hmm. gets pricked by this Buddha print. Yeah. It was interesting. It was like that one little finger prick felt like that was what through that little mm -hmm. that little hole was what kind of sent uh, this torrent of uh, memories yeah. coming out. That's that's how it worked for me. It's a wonderful book. There's, there's, a, there's two things in this book that um, I, I really wanted to point out. One is that you have a very strong kind of natural voice of a storyteller that comes across on the page. It doesn't uh, seem like you're, I don't know, trying to be too literary. Not. It's, it's, it has a strong voice, but also there's a lot of material in there as well. How did you get signed up? to Air America. I think in your book you mentioned you weren't really completely aware of what you had signed up for, literally. No, I wasn't completely signed up. And the sign-in thing, I think I went over in that one chapter of H.H. Uh, Dawson called me. Uh, I was flying from Mr. Hoffa and I was in the Chicago Lakefront Airport, which is no longer there. Mm -hmm. And uh, got a call to come to the airport manager's office. And uh, what year is this? Pardon? What year was this? That was 1964. 64, okay. Just before Jimmy went on a federal vacation. Okay. Actually, I'm going to have to... <laughs> this is going to sound a bit disgruntled, but I think I just skipped over something a little, a little, bit, uh, a little bit worth mentioning, is that you were, you were a pilot for Jimmy Hoffa. Yes. While he was leading the union. Can you maybe talk about that job just a little bit? Um, um, your experience with Mr. Hoffa, you, you met Jimmy Hoffa? You knew him, obviously? Yes. yes, obviously I did. He had two aircraft. One was a Beach 9800, which I was the captain on that. And I had a, a mechanic co-pilot who was uh, not much of a pilot, but at least he took care of the airplanes once we landed. 
And uh, it was a good job. The only thing was you didn't know where you were going to be the next day. And also, you never told anybody where you were going to go. Uh, the FBI was constantly monitoring me and even would put a car out in front of the house in the middle of the winter and uh, be out there to see where I was going to go. And I'd call and check the weather from Mexico City or Argentina, stuff like that. So they'd think I'm going out of the country, which made them terribly nervous. And uh, when you get to the airport, the weather was good enough that you didn't have to file an IFR flight plan. You wouldn't. And you just take off. And uh, as soon as you're outside of the, the view of the tower, you turn in the direction you really wanted to go. So I know they, oh, right. they were relaying information to the FBI, too. And uh, radar was almost non-existent in America, other than in control zones around large cities. So they, they had no idea where I was going to go. So where and was Jimmy Hoffa going most of the time? He was actively engaged in maintaining his control of the Union. Jimmy uh, was kind of a one-man band, and he was up working 18 to 20 hours a day. Uh, he didn't smoke, didn't drink. And one thing you didn't want to do around him is be seen with someone other than your wife. He was not into that sort of thing either. And he also insisted that you call home every night and put it on the union bill. Didn't care if you talked for two hours. You just go ahead and put it on the union bill. And the funny part about that, a lot of those phone calls disappeared. I think the FBI was taping them looking for a code or some damn thing. Right. And... <laughs> They never did show up on the, the, the phone bill at all. So he was aware, he was aware, obviously, the FBI was listening to him, oh, watching yes. him, tracking him. And we had uh, uh, people doing that, too. Uh, we had a bug man, too, and he had the uh, Farfoon uh, mics and the shotgun mics. And the, uh, we had everybody over in their hotel bugged, and they had us bugged, too. Who was he bugging? Uh, the FBI. <laughs> Really? And uh, they're at the union headquarters in Washington, D.C. on the Capitol Square. It's the only non-union building there. Uh, we had Mike's trained on uh, uh, Kennedy's office. <laughs> Paid for with union dollars? That's right. So it sounds like you, you came from a, like a culture of uh, discretion, clandestine operations, and, uh, yes. and secrecy. Yes. You didn't talk about where you went, who was on board or anything else, uh, even in ca casual conversation, even with your family, you didn't want to do that. In Chattanooga, I think the FBI had got a, a buy on trench coats, and they all wore these khaki trench coats, and they'd start following you the minute you got out of the hotel. And if you turned around and said, hey, are you FBI? Oh, he'd, no, no, he'd turn and go the other way, and somebody else would replace him with a trench coat on, too. It was comical. So you started to get on a, you also had an awareness of uh, when you're being followed. I mean, that sounds kind of like. Oh, spider. yes. You yeah. absolutely expected it because of the sensitivity of the, the trial and the, the players involved, uh, Bobby Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa, and they hated each other. And Jimmy, of course, did have control of the largest union in the United States. And many of the other smaller unions were, nervous about that because his premise was didn't care how many trucking companies you worked for it went into a common retirement fund whereas many of the others uh, when large car companies went broke like hudson and things like that those people were just out in the wind their, their retirement went with the company and uh, uh where that money ended up in whose pocket i don't know but uh, uh there was some fancy footwork going on there, no doubt. I have to ask this question. What do you think happened to him? Ah, well, the thing in the uh, movie there, I, I doubt that sincerely. Uh, the best way back in those days was a barrel, put the body in there and pour acid in. And then you pour that liquid into the Detroit River. And I think that's why Lake Erie is so polluted. That's, that's a theory. That's, yeah, that's well, theory. it was a way of getting rid of a body. To put it into a foundation of a building or something like that, that always has a 
possibility of getting discovered and makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And I suspect my theory is close to the uh, truth. I tried to uh, lay hints that he was buried in the upper hayfield in my place up there in northern Michigan so I could get it all tilled up. But <laughs> nobody bit on that. Very attractive buyer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that kind of chemical technology was was available. Yes, it was. So anyway, thanks thanks for that. You can read more about that in the book. But I, I wanted to uh, see how you got started with Air America. I mean, where we first started out. I mean, did you know it, it, what it was you were signing up for? No, I didn't. But I had suspicions of what was going on when he told me H.H. Uh, Dawson told me to. Uh, be ready to go in two weeks and get a, a passport in Detroit. And went there and they said it'd be uh, 30 to 45 days to get a passport. And then he asked me who I was going to go to work for. And I told him I had a passport in four days. So that doesn't uh, compute. Something funny's going on. And then one of the lawyers came up to the cockpit while the co-pilot was back serving drinks. And uh, he asked me where I was going. And I said, Air America. And he says, oh, yeah, that's the CIA. <laughs> you had great visions of Terry and the Pirates, a comic strip in that era, and new James Bond models and stuff like that. Uh, but that was far from being the truth. It's a lot grittier. But your initial transportation out there gave you the illusion that, yeah, hey, I'm going to be a 007 because they put you on first class Northwest Orient to Tokyo, Japan, and got there and then got on the civil air transport airplane, which was part of the same outfit. And it was a beautiful airplane, polished to the ninth degree, and a large gold dragon on the side. And first class on that, too. So you had the idea that, man, this is really going to be neat. Cut to a plane load full of chickens. That's right landing somewhere. What was your awareness of Air America at the time? I mean, you thought it was some sort of swashbuckling, adventurous yes. spy thing. And yes. what, was the, what was the comic strip you mentioned? Uh, that was uh, Terry and the Pirates. He did depict some stuff from Air America on his comic strip. Yeah, I read a little bit about the history of it from the Flying Tigers and that, that group that sort of misfits. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> True. Flew across to fight against the Japanese and to train the, the Chinese guy. That was in the 40s or 30s, late 30s, right? Late 30s. That was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Didn't want to get involved with that war, and China was asking for help. So he gave them 100 P-40s and also allowed pilots from the, the armed services to leave and go over there to fly those on a per-kill basis. And they got $600 per kill that they, that Japanese airplanes that they shot down, which was big money back in those days. And uh, eventually, of course, the Japanese overwhelmed everything. They got chased out. And our leader back then was uh, Claire Chenault. And Claire Chenault remained in China because he'd married a Chinese girl and started an airline there after World War II, developed a travel regular airline routes in China because there was nothing there. That was civilian air transport. Uh, no, that was CNAC, mm -hmm. China National Air Corporation. And it morphed into CAT, and uh, Mao Zedong chased them out to Formosa, which is Taiwan, and that developed from that point. So Chenault was the leader of the Flying Tigers at the end, wasn't he? Right. He called them General Chenault, I guess? That's right. I think he started off as a colonel, and he uh, ended up a general, and then he remained in that area after the war. He did not come back to the United States. Uh, his daughter was here uh, last year. So did you meet any of those former Flying Tigers while you were there? Like, what year did you get to? to 64, Tokyo and there was a, a few of the guys there. Randall Richardson, Shower Shoes Wilson, and uh, Shower Shoes used to be a radio operator for the Tigers. And uh, they were uh, pilots then with Air America. And Shower Shoes Wilson, they discovered 
he did not have a U.S. pilot's license. <laughs> so they sent him back to California to get a license. And uh, uh, he passed written on the thing and wanted to take a flight test. And uh, there was a DC-3 there. And so he leased that, and the examiner said, well, have you flown that much? He said, yeah, I have. He said, how many hours you got in the DC-3? He says, 29,000. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, he passed his check ride. <laughs> but he wore shower shoes when he flew, right? That's right. So you did meet some of those guys. I guess I, guess, I mean, imagine that was sort of set an example for, for, for everybody? Yes, it, it did. And uh, uh, it was kind of the roots that I really wanted to be involved with. The flight school I used in Detroit to learn how to fly was uh, Mr. Patterson. And he'd flown with a hat and ring uh, uh, squadron. What's that? Uh, that was World War I with spads, a hat and oh, wow. ring squadron. Doolittle was... Uh, uh, in that, and of course, he came out, and he ended up in Eastern Airlines. But uh, Pat was a, a good guy; always kept a bottle in his dress drawer. And <laughs> it was a different world in aviation uh, back then. The cost was something that I could wash airplanes and garner enough money to afford to learn how to fly. Uh, now you can't do that. Kids can't even get on the airport and bum rides and touch airplanes or anything else. They got chain link fences keeping them out. And that's a shame. Eventually you made it to, to Laos. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Obviously it was a secret war. I mean, I had to kind of refresh myself, even though I'd you know, studied Vietnam while I was in school in military history. The civil war in Laos was something that was going on literally right underneath you while you were in the air. And I, I guess that's right. as a, as a lead-in, what, what was your overall mission? Was it assisting the um, anti-communist forces or the government forces in Laos or assisting operations in Vietnam? What was your mission once you really started flying over there? In Laos, we were in support of the Hmong people, which were the hill tribes there in Laos. It was their homeland, and they were fiercely defending it for over 17 years by themselves, only with our support as far as munitions training and things like that. They, they were extremely good and loyal people. Uh, they thought the U.S. government was a wonderful thing until we abandoned them. And they still think we're great, which is unique, I think. In Laos, they do? No, in the United States, where most of them came after the war. Oh, right. And you're talking about the Hmong people hung with an H, right? H? Yes. Were they the Mio? No. Tribes people? They were, that was a different group. Different group. Ethnically, I think there was a bond in there somewhere, but the language and everything else was different. Uh, the mountain yards were in Vietnam. There'd always been friction between them and the Vietnamese. Uh, the Vietnamese didn't want them, and uh, the mountain yards didn't want the Vietnamese. And in 1966, they tried to form a movement called Fulcro and to separate themselves and have their own country in the central highlands of Vietnam. And the U.S. Special Forces at Bom Bring supported that. But the U.S. government said no, and they sided with the South Vietnamese. I think that was a big mistake in many ways, because they would have held their homeland. And the South Vietnamese weren't up there in the highlands. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then that would have been a great uh, move. And they could have bonded also with the Hmong and Laos, which were just across the border. That would have worked. But that was an interesting way to, to see the war, I'd imagine, um, mm -hmm. or to keep tabs on the war in, in Vietnam with what you were doing. I mean, you were right across the border, flying missions in support of the Hmong people, ostensibly. In your book, and also in Christopher Robbins' book, he mentioned that it was probably a little bit more, it was more difficult flying where you were than it was in Vietnam. Yes. Because, and I had to get used to your vocabulary uh, in your book as well. Like fascinating is a completely different <laughs> meaning. <laughs> um, I think you wrote that it was more interesting flying in Laos right. than it was in Vietnam. And I had to read in a little bit to see what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, apparently the communist forces could climb right up to the edge of the, mm -hmm. of the landing strip. So you were 
constantly in peril, you didn't have the advantage of these large, secured bases that you could fly in and out of. No, and we never did live with uh, uh, in barracks guarded by military or anything else. We lived on the local economy, both in Vietnam and both in Laos. All our medical facilities were Chinese. Chiang Kai-shek's uh, more or less son-in-law was our doctor in Taipei. And, of course, all the little outposts that had medical facilities were staffed by Chinese doctors from Taiwan. And they were pretty good. There were some glitches there, but uh, overall, I think they did a, a wonderful job. But we did not have the advantage of U.S. military hospitals and things like that, although on occasion we did put some of the severely wounded and burned people in there. Yeah, you have had some experiences in your life and some that you wrote about in this book that um, that nobody should ever have to should have to see. And I, I don't really want to gloss gloss over that. That was some I mean, there's some traumatic things to to see and, and to experience while you're there, while you were doing what you were doing. But um, that said, you seems like you definitely went native. I mean, there's a scene where you're talking about <laughs> putting on your sarong and feeding yeah. your red parrot finger bananas. I thought, wow, you yeah. really went native in more ways than one. That's right. um, maybe we could talk about life in Vientiane a little bit. Oh, yes. There again, uh, we did not have military mess halls or anything like that. And I was well suited for that because growing up in rural Michigan, uh, our last trip into a supermarket was in September. We didn't go again until April or May because of the snow prevented that. And we ate what we caught on the trap line or what had been canned in the fall. And uh, muskrat is good eating. Uh, squirrel is good eating. Uh, porcupine is good eating. And uh, so the food there did not disturb me at all. They, my only disturbing uh, episode was in Taiwan, and I was taking a young gal to the movies, and she bought a paper cup full of what I thought was popcorn or such as that. But when I ate one of them, there was little stickers in my lip. And I found out you're supposed to pull the legs off the grasshoppers before you eat them. Why, they get stuck <laughs> in your teeth? They get stuck in your lip. They're very sharp. Good to know. A little tip for the live drop listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but the Americans, uh, you know, really restrict their diet, although there's a lot of people that eat belly cuttings from animals and burnt grain every day. That's bacon, eggs, and toast. Well, you bit the head off a partridge in one scene in your book, I think. Yeah. That's pretty much the regret. I'm getting, I'm starting to understand where the nickname Weird came from. I was difficult as far as new hires go, and I hazed them unmercifully. And I think I explained there in the book, I was looking for eagles, I wasn't looking for buzzards, and I assumed that they really knew all the basics of flying. If they were weak in that area, I didn't want them, because they're going to go out and kill themselves. We were not operating in airstrips that met FAA regulations as far as balanced field length in a twin or multi-engine airplane, there's a speed that puts you lose an engine, you can continue out and climb. Well, on these strips, you came off the ground before you were that fast. You had a long gray area before you had enough speed in case something did go wrong in an engine that you would be able to survive. So I was difficult about that. Yeah, that's an understatement. I, I don't think you're allowed to teach people how to fly the way you did anymore. I mean, you pretty much did it. You're essentially the equivalent of reaching from behind and covering their eyes. That's yeah, right. I mean, cables but, that you could pull and gauges that you could mess with just for, mm -hmm. to see how people uh, reacted like that. Uh, the other thing, too, and new co-pilots that I had, I always kept a coloring book and crayons in my flight kit. And after we get off the ground, I said, you hold this heading, and I'd pull those out and start coloring. Well, that would kind of worry them a bit about my capabilities and sanity. When the loadmasters would come up and say, can I color too? <laughs> no, you got to stay in the lines. I have, did you stay in the lines? I have a feeling, I don't know. Yes, I did. <laughs> Do you have any on your refrigerator that you, that you saved? Right here. Is that Crayola crayons or like a... Yes, Crayolas. No, Rose Art, they call this one. 
So what would you have, the 24-pack or the 12-pack? Oh, I had 64. Oh, so you had the big. So when you were in the air, you'd have the big 64 to choose from. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And, of course, I'd always make $5 turns. $5 turns after takeoff were all to the right because you're at low level, and that's where you're subject to ground fire from small arms. So if it did take a round, it'd have to go through the co-pilot before it got to me. So what was the what's the five dollars? What's the significance of that? Because they got paid five dollars for hazard pay per hour, and I got ten. Barely there. Never a ten dollar turn. No. <laughs> Sounds like you were flying out of. I don't know where where you were at all the to- all the times. I mean, you were, you said you were in Taiwan. Taiwan is where the home base was, as far as the headshed of the administrative part. And uh, there you learned. Uh, you had to go to a ground school to get your Chinese license. We're not registered in America. They were registered in Taiwan. Uh, if that airplane was found in a neutral country where it wasn't supposed to be, then they had plausible deniability. We also had Lao registered airplanes, a few American registered in Vietnam, but it was logical. That's complex. But it, and it was not only the most shot at airline in the world, but it was the largest airline in the world. And we were number four, I think, as far as number of equipment. I don't think we ever made number one, but we had a lot of airplanes at one time. It started off small, and then it snowballed rapidly. That's why when I did go to Vietnam, I was only in a hotel for about three days before they made me a captain flying the line in Vietnam. Thirty days after that, they made me an instructor pilot, checking out all the new guys. And a couple months after that, they made me assistant manager flying for the whole country. And what years were that? Were you in Vietnam? 64 to 69. You're flying? Laos from uh, 69 to 73 when Air America pulled out of there. That's when I thought I'd try to quell my uh, adrenaline addiction and go down to New Zealand and fly down there. That didn't work. I got a call and I came back up to Cambodia, which was a nightmare and a half, and ended up, of course, in a holocaust at the end 1.7 million cambodians lost their lives and ended up flying up there until they put a guy in the jump seat in the airplane uh, with a red star on his cap and a pistol on his belt that did not bode well as far as longevity in that particular field so i escaped across the river and down to bangkok and off to the united states i don't believe i'm sitting here talking to someone who just said yeah wasn't comfortable with the communists in the cockpit, so I escaped across the river <laughs> to yeah. Thailand, and, well, then I made it back to America. We didn't get back. Just to remind everybody, I'm talking with Captain Neil Graham Hansen, along with Luann Groskup. He's the author of Flight, an Air America pilot story of adventure, descent, and redemption. I think we're still in the adventure part of, yes. the, of the story right now. Maybe you could talk about typical mission. I mean, you, you write about in your book, you know, the, the, one, the one mission you had where your, your C-123 actually went down. That was really cool to see, like, hear, like, all the details of it. But maybe you could talk about a, a, a typical mission. I, I, I was surprised to read that a lot of what you carried was, was rice and sustenance and things like this. Rice, no, uh, not in the 123 program. We did carry it occasionally. But the C-46 program was the one that carried most of the rice. And they'd been doing it for a decade. And many of uh, the young kids in villages up country in Laos thought that rice grew in the sky. That's where it fell down from. Wow. <laughs> the airplanes. And I can't blame them. The rice, of course, was, uh, comes in 100-kilo bags. But they reduced that to 40 kilos in the bag and double bag it and then put it on pallets that would go out the side of the airplane or out the back of the airplane in the 123 from 800 feet and 105 knots. And that gives it enough time for air resistance to slow the forward motion down. In the last 50 to 100 feet, the bags fall flat. They just fall vertically and they wouldn't break. Uh, If you're faster than that or lower than that, the bags would tumble and break. But they'd be down there trying to collect it. The other bad part was in new villages, they'd never had rice drops before. And they'd see these bags coming out of the airplane and run out there and try to catch them. And that was a very big mistake because 40 kilos is still 
over 80 pounds at 100 knots, it's going to hurt you bad. And uh, the plywood pallets they were on would, of course, come off and start falling a leaf down. And they'd try to get those because wood like that was very valuable to them as far as their living conditions. And, of course, they'd cut them right in two if they tried to get it. They learned the hard way to avoid the drop zone. Our resupply in the 123 was mostly munitions. That was our biggest thing there. Hard rice. Hard rice. And you tailored your drop to the load that you had on board. If you had hand grenades, small arms ammunition, claymore mines, you knew the bad guys are going to be pretty close because that's the supplies they need to keep them away. So you kept your pattern in real tight and dropped about half a track at a time, about 4,000 pounds at a time. If you had artillery rounds and things like that, you know that was going to go way out. That was no big problem. So you could make a normal race-type pattern and be very accurate in your drop. You would look at your load to assess the risk. That's right. Of the drop. That's right. And one other thing I did, and I was rather unpopular with co-pilots for this, I insisted everybody wear parachutes. Of course, the load masters in the back, they did, because they're operating with no restraint by an open ramp, 115-knot wind blowing off the edge of it. So uh, they were in great danger back there. And in turbulence, it was a pretty rough job back there. For us up front, yeah, it was uncomfortable wearing a parachute. But if you do run into trouble... You really don't have time to get down the ladder into the cabin and put it on and adjust it properly. If uh, it's adjusted properly, you can't hardly stand up straight because the straps are so tight. If they're not tight, you may talk in a high squeaky voice. Leg <laughs> <laughs> straps were loose. Well, they're two straps. Don't they? I mean, they could kind of pinch potentially, right? Oh, yes, yes. And just these parachutes we had were old World War II surplus. They weren't new parachutes for steerable or anything else. And uh, when they opened, they just snapped the hell out of you and took bites out of your shoulder blades and uh, strawberries in your crotch from the blood blisters. And, uh, but they worked. That's the biggest thing. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting here as living proof of that. And I was lucky in many ways because in the history of the company, I had the only crew that came back intact. I met one of them. Yes, Sam Pop. He, he was a good guy. He, he threw my co-pilot out, which was great. He more or less saved my life because uh, I used to always tell the crew in the briefing, if I order bailout, don't wait for a second because you'll be by yourself. You'll be the captain. But now I found I couldn't do that. I had to make sure they got out. I have to say there was a, when I was in Bangkok and I met your, your kicker, uh, uh-huh. Sam Pop. Yeah, you didn't hesitate to tell them that you were grateful that he saved your life, essentially. I, it was an That's extremely right. moving moment to see that, that older man hearing that from you. Mm-hmm. He's had a stroke, and I know he's uh, diminished now, but uh, he, he was a hell of a warrior in his day. Yeah, he showed up on time. Yeah. Like early in Vietnam, I'd, I'd sort of glossed over that a little bit. I mean, Vietnam, 64 to 69, that was... That was a pretty intense time, and you were yes, a flight instructor. What was actually what were you actually doing in Vietnam at that point? Uh, we were resupplying fire bases and things like that, and also carrying passengers and and things uh, around in Vietnam and uh, various airplanes, uh, uh, Beach Ten Two, Volpar, C forty sevens, which is a DC three, C forty six, and these C forty sixes had seen duty in mainland China prior to World War II. Uh, so they were rather old, and they were Chinese registry. In the United States, they'd be illegal because they had the four-bladed Curtis Electric steel propellers on them. Uh, they found here in the United States, without constant good maintenance, they'd run away and either tear the engine off the wing or just do the airplane in totally. And I had one runaway up in Dilat, but I got away with it because it happened on takeoff. Yeah, it's, it's interesting the, the limitations that some of these planes had. I mean, some of them the. And today we wouldn't be able to operate those airplanes as we did then. You can't get the gasoline. Back then we were operating on 115, 145 octane fuel, higher octane. Now 90 octane is all you can get, and you lose a lot of horsepower out of those engines. 
Yeah, you ran the. You guys pushed those planes to their limits. I mean, That's even right. more so than the military. You, you mentioned that, like Air America would, um, they would fly a plane a little faster, a little lower, a little higher, a little longer. That's right. And we carry loads that they wouldn't. We carried munitions that were fused. In other words, if we were carrying a load of bombs up to twenty alternate. The fuses would be on board too. Uh, napalm the same way. Uh, they'd be fused. The military didn't want fuses and munitions together on their flights. They had to be fused once they got on the ground. But no, we didn't do that. Of course, air dropping. I, I must say that Air America was the uh, top of the field in that. The military did not do much air dropping. We did it every damn day, and we were really good at it. In fact, I remember one time I, they were, had a farm trailer out there. They were going to haul the cargo away. I put the load on the farm trailer. <laughs> <laughs> you did what you had to do with what you had, and uh, we got away with it. Although we did have our losses. In the last 19 months in Laos, we lost over 50% of our C-123s. I had the only crew that came back. 50%. Mm-hmm. Did that? Why? Why was that? Did it have something to do with the the weapons that the path that Lao were getting? Or yeah, well, it was North Vietnamese mainly. Mainly, were controlling those weapons. Uh, in the plane to jars, the North Vietnamese were in there, and they had radar control weapons there. And over when the Chinese were bringing a road down out of Yunnan province into Thailand, they had radar controlled weapons there. That what got two of our C-123s. And in fact, uh, the remains of one just came back last year. Oh, that was the one they couldn't find. They couldn't figure out where it crashed, and they realized it was probably a rocket. Yeah, well, more than likely radar-controlled anti-aircraft. Uh, I remember when Ritter went down, they sent a Volpar up there to drop leaflets, hoping that somebody would pick it up and want to get the reward in this leaflet for the information on the crash. And uh, they took a round to the belly of the bullpar and blew uh, uh, Jim Ryan's leg off. They got back to Udorn, and he ended up coming back uh, with an artificial leg. And the loadmaster, uh, uh, Bobby Harold, which I'm still in contact with, got on top of him and put his knee in his groin to cut the blood flow down from the artery. So he, he lived through it. Gosh. That was rough things going on. And I thought traffic was bad on the 110 last night. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to really make my... I'm not going to be complaining about my, my commuting. <laughs> Generally, what are the big... What are people not understanding about Air America? Or what are the... It's a big question, but what are some of the misconceptions? Misconceptions are a lot that were manufactured by that movie, too that it was nothing but a drug-running operation. It's not. Uh, I'm sure there was villagers that came in on our airplanes with a sticky brick somewhere in their luggage. But opium in a kilo of that invention sold for $33. Same kilo of opium in New York City. You're, you're really starting to get in some major bucks. But the basic control there was through the Corsicans out of Vincent. And they're the ones that control the flow and perhaps uh, uh, making it into heroin. Uh, we did, were not involved in that at all. We knew it was there. Yeah, there was no law against it in Laos. Uh, there was no drug law involved at all. It was a free fire zone. But you didn't see addicts running around in the street. It was used in many cases with old people. They'd give them what they called a black pearl of opium. They'd swallow it and they'd go out in a dream, which I think was perhaps one of the kinder things to do with people our age. <laughs> you don't have any black pearls laying around. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Your book, you mentioned how that the French actually were using the opium trade. And this is when the French were there kind of fighting their colonial wars like in the 50s oh, and the yes. 60s. The French were actually using the opium trade to fund their expedition for the most part. Uh, General Vang Pao got elevated to his rank. Uh, he was a, a Hmong officer, and they recognized him as his talent. He was not the typical soldier up there in the Plain de Jars. And they sent him to France and to officer's training and brought him back. 
and he was there mainly to help them keep the opium trade in their palm. There's many others that have tried that. The English were involved in that back in the, the day out of Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, it's always been a cash crop. Uh, when you look at these mountains, you're not going to plant potatoes there and get any money to raise your family. Uh, that was the only cash crop that was available that uh, was internationally viable. And it still is, uh, whether it's out of Mexico or any place else. American involvement? No, I just never did see anything like that. Uh, I'm sure there may have been, but uh, I think it was mainly controlled by the Corsicans and the French. There's a book called The Corsicans, and it's staged in Vincennes, too. And Mario Puzo, I think, wrote that. Did you meet any Corsicans in Vincennes? No. (laughs) Steinbeck's kid was there. He was riding around on a motorcycle, and I don't know if he ever did do anything good. (laughs) There was all kinds of people that would come there. Vincennes was wide open. It was a frontier town, more or less. Uh, Hippies would come, and uh, there was a French there. The Chinese were there, red Chinese. The North Vietnamese were there. The communist Laos were there. Everybody was there. We all drank in the same bars and participated in the houses of pleasure there. And outside of town, we all shot at each other. And if all of those factions would have got together, they would have been toast there. Uh, but they didn't cooperate with each other. That's the funny part. Yeah, I was reading Vincennes was was uh, neutral territory. It was off limits. Yes. It was official, like a demilitarized that's John. right. I mean, it was more or less the bar in Star Wars. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty good. I, I like that comparison. <laughs> I I was reading that somebody, I think it was in uh, Robin's book where he mentioned, maybe yours as well, that what's a, what's a 144? Is that a Russian transport? That there were sometimes Russian pilots that you've, that you've uh, run into oh, as they, well? Uh, uh, yeah, they had that there after the uh, war was over and the Pathé Lao took over. And uh, they would be flying out of the same airport. I'd be right across the ramp in a C-46. And uh, when I came out the airplane, I always wave and always turn and look the other way. They might be seen associated with. And they were flying to the same places up the plane to Jars that I was. I could make three trips to there too. They were just so top-heavy, uh, administrative-wise. It was not efficient. I mean, Air America was. Well, I'm gathering. Some people would, would criticize it and say, oh, they were mercenaries and this and that. But you you guys were, there was America in the title. You There was That's a right. sense of patriotism. You just wondering how you would compare your experience with someone who was in the military. We had a much freer reign of what we were going to do and what we we're going to take and how we did it. Military went by numbers and uh, you couldn't do that in such a flexible environment as we had up in Laos, both weather and enemy-wise. And there were several other factors thrown in there. Your CIA case officer, codenamed whatever, Black Lion, Tall Man, Gray Fox, Church Bell, such as that. If they had a patrol out or a site out there that they wanted to keep and keep the enemy away from, they'd lie to you to get you to go in there even if they knew there was big weapons in that area. And that's what happened to me. I thought I could outsmart them, but uh, I didn't. And you, you had to watch them, too. Don't believe everything. If you do, you're going to get killed. And that was a thing that was another part of the balancing act that you had to do to keep alive. Wow, I didn't... I mean, there's one book I want to check out. It's called The Cult of Intelligence by Marchetti, which I think talks about this... Yeah, this kind of elitism, moral mm-hmm. moral ambiguity of of the of the CIA and how they were kind of building this paramilitary force. But yeah, I didn't realize that they were sort of luring you guys into situations that put you mm-hmm. at risk. A lot of that. these uh, theories were concocted in D.C. by a guy sitting at a desk and saying, "Oh boy, if we do this, that should work," and they throw that task down the pipeline to us. And you'd end up sometimes in a whole bag of worms. So you had to make some on-site decisions of what was going to go on. Uh, I never refused a flight, never turned anything down. But I also would temper it with a little more judgment 
of how I was going to do it. And that's what you had to be awfully careful of. And that was a key to longevity in those jobs. I guess that's one big difference from the military is that you actually had the option of turning oh, yes. missions down. And people did, and you could, but if you turn very many down, you're going to go home. And I was thoroughly entrenched in the addiction of adrenaline. I just needed that squirt almost daily. And it is an addiction, i got to admit that. But it was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> I Just listening to the, these missions, these operations, I mean, you would start in... Chen, and then you would fly up to the, the plane of jars and you'd maybe pick up some refugee or it was just amazing what you wouldn't really know you couldn't like sit down and make a to-do list for each day you would no like an average day was it was just an unimaginable number of sorties i guess you call it for yeah i, I had day. a record i had 21 legs in one day in a big airplane and it's like a scavenger hunt i mean you're just going to one place and picking up yeah like, what would that day of 21 legs be like? I was evacuating uh, refugees, and I just did it as much as I could because I needed to get them out of there. And they wanted to come out, and uh, those are desperate, almost tearful times. People, are they know their, their lives are changing forever, and uh, you're just taking them out of the, the hail of fire, basically. You felt good about those days. But you felt bad about the people. But one fellow here in uh, Wisconsin, he credits me with evacuating his family. Been a good friend ever since we've been here. Really? He remembers you? I don't know if he does or not, because mainly they couldn't see us up there in the cockpit, really. But uh, if you had seats in the airplane, you could carry 60 people. I came out of alternate one day with 154 on board. I just had them put straps across the floor. When you're full... Raise the ramp and we'll go. Totally illegal, of course, but <laughs> that was not part of the equation at that time. I mean, how many thousands of refugees would did you guys move out of those areas of Laos? That's hard to pick a number. I'd say seven to 10,000 with yeah. all the airplanes and helicopters. And it was almost that same number of getting out of, getting out of Vietnam before that fell to the North Vietnam. That's right. Getting out of Saigon. Mm-hmm. The uh, picture by Van S of the last helicopter, that's an Air America helicopter. Yeah, Bob Karen flew it. He lives down in Florida. And Because I was looking at some pictures, I thought, these guys don't all look like they're in uniform. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of the helicopter right. pilots have to fly. We had a gray uniform, but the color of this shirt. Uh, initially, they made this stuff out of a polyester. But then after several guys got burned in uh, crashes, they found that it would melt right into your skin, which was not a good thing. So we did change a little bit there. We had Nomex flight gloves, uh, which would give you a little protection when you're clawing your way out. So when you would fly on um, Mickey Mouse missions or black mm-hmm. black missions? Black would, flights. Would, uh, could you describe that process and how it was different from a, a normal? It, it was one of those things. I, I think I did the one on uh, Hong Kong there. But uh, I, got, I was assistant manager flying in Saigon, and I had the opportunity to have a radio by my bed so they could call me out at any time of the day or night. I got a call about midnight uh, after curfew in Vietnam. They would come out to take a flight and uh, pick up an American co-pilot. Normally, we flew with Chinese co-pilots, and so I knew it was going to be a black flight and got out to the airport and... Uh, one of the customers from the embassy was there in operations, told me, uh, got me aside, didn't want my co-pilot to hear this. Why? He's going with me. This is really kind of stupid. Uh, he said, we can, why don't you take this load in the airplane? Don't look at it. I uh, see 46, so I'm going to have to walk 30 feet by it to get to the cockpit. But uh, I want you to go to Hong Kong. When you leave here, don't talk to anybody until you're 50 miles outside of Hong Kong. Call them and they'll clear you to land. Uh, don't make ops normal calls or anything else. Go completely black out of here. Just like Jimmy and, Hoffa. Just, just yeah. Like Jimmy Hoffa does. <laughs> and so I did. And I got 50 miles out of Hong Kong. But I saw it was uh, tear gas grenades and small arm stuff. And Hong Kong's kind of hell on wheels about munitions there. Because it's, it's still a British Kong colony. Uh, if they don't clear me to land, I'm not going to have enough gas to go anywhere. I'm either going to have to bust in, go ahead and land illegally, 
or ditch it in the ocean. All of this explosives behind me, that's not going to be a good idea either. And when I got there, yeah, they cleared me to land. Landed, and I thought they'll let me park over to the side. No, had me park right in front of the terminal. Props came to a stop. Two police trucks came out, and I thought, oh, boy, <laughs> this is going to be the end of this shit. No, they climbed up the ladder in there and started off loading. Didn't go in and have a cup of coffee, mate. I did. Refueled, went back the same way, and that worked. You still had a lot of apprehension en route, knowing that, hey, this is kind of up against a wall. You've got very few options after this if you don't get cleared to land. When you don't have that sort of support or anybody, one of the things I was warm to hear about with Air America is that whenever some, whenever there was a crash, there was no hesitation to go out and find this person. That's right. And try to recover them as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess in those black operations, you didn't necessarily have that. Uh, you weren't as no. easy to find. No, you, you were just left out in the wind. Uh, when uh, I got arrested by the Thai police and Tok Lee that one time, yeah, it was supposed to be all laid on by the embassy. Don't worry about it. Uh, it ended up, I did what I, they wanted me to do, smuggle this guy into the country. But uh, they fell in on me and they held me for a while. And whenever in danger or doubt, get very stupid. That works. And it worked for me. Yeah, <laughs> you said, me yeah, back. you wrote, get stupid and, and, and shut your mouth. That's right. Uh, and you had opportunity. <laughs> Not to jump ahead, I mean, think you were... I mean, yeah. you were held in Colombia. Yeah. I think yeah. for a while where you had to play dumb and keep your mouth shut. And That's right. Then you were incarcerated <laughs> stateside, I think. Uh, That's right. With Mr. Marcello. Mr. Marcello. No. Uh, Kennedy assassination. Most people say the shot came from the grassy knoll. Well, Marcello was involved in that. He was incarcerated with me in Texarkana. Okay, this is a chapter I missed in your book. <laughs> no, there's no chapter on that, really. <laughs> so you were incarcerated with Marcel and Frank Mar- Frank Marcello, is that his name? I forget his first name. He had his own uh, little room, and he had his own special dining hall table and some of his goombas and everything else there. Just like the Godfather, he's shaving the garlic, razor thin. That's right. That's right. So you sh- did you have a chance to talk with him at all? No. No, he was kept separated by his lieutenants that were there, too. And also the staff gave him special privileges, prison staff. But didn't you ever throw down your Jimmy Hoffa card and say, hey, let's, let's have some... No, no, meat. I didn't. Let's have some lasagna together some night. <laughs> uh, he was, he, was a, he wasn't a friend of Bobby Kennedy, so, you know... No, no, he wasn't. There, there's... Uh, Quite a, a, a lot of things that are not in the history book as far as that era and the things that went on. Any you want to share specifically right now <laughs> while you have the opportunity? <laughs> no, I was not privy to an awful lot of it. I remember we went down to uh, Daytona and uh, actually Melbourne, and they went out to see the Kennedys, uh, the attorneys for the lawyer union, and uh, they didn't make any headway there, so we went right back to Chattanooga. That was an interesting era, and most of our muscle did come out of Baton Rouge in Louisiana. Three-finger jack and stuff like that. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you, you have some uh, you have in some institutional knowledge of some very mysterious uh, goings-on in this country's history, I'd have to say. Oh, yeah. It is a different world, and it's a, a world that most Americans could not comprehend. Uh, it's beyond their ken. They wow. don't know the inner dealings of government and also outside influence and things like that. And they don't want to. They don't want to believe that. And that's how it stays hidden. Uh, and that was really Air America, too. Our secrecy did not involve the bad guys. The bad guys knew who the hell we were. Uh, they didn't want America to know we were up there violating Geneva Accords. And they wanted to keep the white hat on, keep that a mystery from them. And it's a shame because all of these guys that did lose their life and the rest of that, there's no recognition by the U.S. government to have an Air America Day or something in Congress like that. I'm working on that, in fact. 
how are they integrated into appreciation for veterans or veterans organizations? Or, I mean, could somebody who was in Air America go to the VA? Are they considered veterans? No, they're not. I'm lucky, and it's the only health care I have, but I was in the Air Force prior to all of this. And so I do have VA benefits, which they've been most excellent. They've done great things for me. I'm very impressed with them. I mean, where are, is, is, there a, is there a statue for Air, Air yeah. America? Is there a memorial? There <laughs> is a plaque, the guys who got killed in Langley. But it's not public. It, that, that's a shame. The only public viewing of the people we lost is down in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. The Hmong erected a memorial down there, and they put everybody that of us that died in Laos on their memorial, and they paid for it themselves, which is really great. So what do you think has been holding it back, just the, the, the secrecy of it or the bad reputation from the... I want to admit that we are involved in a, a fighting war in a neutral country. <laughs> Once you do start talking about Air America, there's a lot you have to unpack. That's right. And I think some okay. people don't want to unpack it all. Well, I'm willing to set it all free. Luan talked me into it. And, uh, uh, and I think you have. And Luan, thanks for talking to him about the uh, going more detail into his descent. <laughs> his descent. Yeah, uh, she said, do the full Monty, you know. And uh, she's right. And it, it's gone over good. Last year I did the full Monty for the Rotary Bunch and uh, also uh, two presentations in the EAA Museum. And it went over real good. So what do you mean it went over real good? My, I, my thought is that people would want to hear your story. They want to hear the story of a hero who came back and There's, whatever. That's a, but, but you kind of came back with this addiction to adrenaline, which led to some, some questionable jobs. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and to try to deny that it happened is, is silly. Uh, then you've always got a gorilla in the closet. Uh, I let the gorilla out. And uh, that's, I think, the best way to approach it. And people don't seem to mind it that bad. I, I'm really kind of amazed on the reviews of the book. Uh, more five-star reviews by women than there is guys. That really kind of amazed me. There's, there's adventure. You know, people are kind of, I mean, you know, I'm rooting for you throughout the entire book. But you, you write this one thing, you say, you know, compared to the war or compared to, you know, being in Laos or being in a, you know, a, a dangerous area. You said at, the, at one point you were at the mercy of your own poor choices. That's right. First of all, I just think that was a real kind of brave admission. I'm not really sure where my question is going from here, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that about that transition, about that realization that, wow, these were your own choices. A lot of people, I think, don't make that leap. They continue to blame this, that, or the other thing. And had you always been someone who took accountability for your actions, or was this something you were kind of forced to look at? I was more or less forced to look at it. Uh, a company I was with was going bankrupt intentionally. Uh, they were taking their money, and we were overflying Cuba down to the Caymans so they could smuggle this money in there and not have to declare it to anybody when they filed bankruptcy and things like that. And so the writing was on the wall that this job is going down the tubes. And it's a shame because it was a company that was involved building interstates. And uh, I enjoyed that because I was taken to the limit there too. They needed dozer parts. I had to load them up and land in the dirt right behind the dozer as he plowed out a runway for me. Nobody else was doing that. Yes, and then I got a call from a fellow I knew. and uh, Who he didn't think too highly of. No, I didn't think too highly of him, and I think I detailed that in the book, too, didn't I? I'm not into people that beat up on women and stuff like that. To me, that's a true coward. Um, that's just not the way to be. But uh, he uh, offered the money, and uh, I did. And that was getting back to the type of flying we did in Laos, taking it right to the limit, dodging the fire on the way back, and... Uh, Never did get picked up on their radar. And I found a way to do it. You had a high at the end of one of those things. It was like winning the Indy 500 in the same cash payoff, <laughs> which uh, was okay, but I knew this it was wrong. It wasn't heroin or anything like that. It was marijuana. 
now you can just about buy it anywhere, I guess. When those organizations fall in, usually the kingpin will blow everybody in its cover, and they get off with a slap on the wrist or a minimal sentence, and everybody else has to bite the bullet. And that's the way it worked there, too. Well, I played the game and rolled the dice, and eventually it's going to bite you. Yeah, and it bit you. But specifically, I think you were caught in Myrtle Beach at one point. That yes. was a different situation. But you you were on, you sort of jumped bail, I think, at one point. Yes, I did. I mean, basically, you were smuggling drugs into America. That's right. <laughs> it was a completely different air America. But, um, That's right. Yes, yeah, so you're smuggling marijuana into into the U.S. You That's got right. caught, you jumped bail, then you're on the lam for a while. And tell me about your time as a farmer. Oh, that was good. I, I like animals, because growing up in a rural area and animals, I was raising uh, African pygmy goats and uh, rias, which are in South America, uh, and the red-eyed family, the flightless birds, and uh, emus, too, from Australia. And uh, they were fun. It was pretty good, but eventually it did fall in. But you lasted a long time off the radar, like That's right. off the grid. Where was the Texas State Penitentiary? Texas, uh, Texarkana, federal. How many years were you kind of successfully in your own, more or less in your own witness protection program? Yeah, four years. Four years. So what was that like? It is not like in the movies by any stretch of the imagination. If you allow yourself to be used, yes, it would be bad. I had a little bit more intelligence. I could type and things like that. In fact, I was, uh, would get into the library and I could read, which a lot of people don't. I uh, could do legal papers for people and uh, file them for them. So I had it really kind of good in that respect. And uh, it's an amazing culture there. I'm still in contact with some of the guys who were there. They're okay. And uh, they follow me too. It sounds like while you were in prison that you, you had a sense of purpose. You were informing yourself. You were helping other people. You were helping and reading. legal struggles and reading. I read the whole library. Really? Any memorable titles or things that your subjects? Not really. I, I, I read a lot of the old favorites, uh, Ernie Gann stuff and everybody of that genre and also many others too. Stephen King, of course, was really good. That was an, a mind adventure. And I love the way he thinks. He's got quite an imagination. There's a lot of others out there, too. Uh, Jack London stuff. Actually, his prose is rather crude, but it's, it's, it gets you. Gets the job done. That's right. I, mean, I, imagine, I imagine being in prison would have its own sources of adrenaline. But how, how did you come to terms with not living that that sort of more risky lifestyle or having or being or flying? Well, you just got to, as they say, crudely get your mind right. And you've got to do it yourself. There's a lot of internal plumbing you've got to do yourself to get your mind right. And then follow those rules. Edit everything that you were doing and put it in little compartments. It helps. Tell me about your kind of attachment to or your interest in it sounds like what you're talking about is right speech, right thought. It sounds sort of, it sounds a little somewhat Buddhist. Yes. Maybe you could describe your your first, uh, your first maybe initial interest in Buddhism, and I know you even spent some time as a monk in a village. <laughs> I mean, somebody listening to listening to this is probably thinking I'm just making it up as I'm as I'm going along, you know. But you you actually were a, a, a served a as monk. a monk in, in a village. Yes. In, uh, in Laos, uh, I think they've got a little bit different twist to Buddhism. Buddhism, like any religion, can be prostituted. And I've always been interested in how you can enmesh people in a belief and have them follow you blindly. Well, Buddhism doesn't do that so much. They add mysticism to it, which is always true. But it's more of an inward turning and finding out what's really in the skull. The plumbing works in there. Meditation is a wonderful thing, but it can be used badly, too. Jim Jones did a good job. <laughs> oh, yeah, I left that part out. You flew into Guyana 
for, yeah. for, a, for a period of time while Jim That's Jones right. was, was stirring, stirring the Kool-Aid. Yeah, he was getting the Kool-Aid going. David Koresh did the same thing. Uh, it's, it's amazing how everybody seems to be willing to eat mystical popcorn. And if you've got the promise of something mystical and wonderful in the future for them, you know, you can put them in a tub of crap and they'll still believe in you. And that's awful. It's, it's an amazing thing that your mind can embrace these things and do them, even though you know basically it's wrong, but that's been so repressed by this belief. Are there some recurring questions that people uh, seem to ask you? Yeah, some of them say, why did you do that? <laughs> what do you tell them? Well, it's pretty hard. I was an adrenaline junkie, and it was the culture of that era, really. You still had to spin off of World War II stuff and all the rest of that, and everybody growing up, they played uh, war games and things like that. I wasn't going to be a farmer. Uh, I got hooked on aviation, and it took me down a different path. It took you to being a farmer for a little while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quite true. Irony of ironies. I really appreciate the interesting conversation, and I want to thank you again for your time. You're no problem. Yeah, just one more question. Um, do you have any advice to... Uh, young pilots or young people kind of getting into the aviation industry? Getting into aviation today is difficult, but one vehicle that would probably be one of the best for young people interested in aviation is the Civil Air Patrol, which is an auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force. They have airplanes, and also they have training programs for guys that are interested in aviation, and that would probably be the easiest and best way them to get out there and actually physically be around where they can touch an airplane and learn uh, about aviation in today's world. Great. And this would be a good opportunity to, um, to thank you, Luann, as well. My pleasure. For participating in the interview and, yeah, for help for helping him remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. We're, we're like an old couple, like mom and pop. Or... <laughs> yeah, well, you you definitely work well together, and I really enjoyed the book. And um, thank you again for your time, and thanks for being on the live drop. You're very welcome. You're welcome, Mark. That was my conversation with Neil Hansen. His book, Flight, is available on Amazon with a link in the show notes. His live presentations tell parts of his amazing story, most of which will likely be postponed as we all shelter and self-distance to contain the spread of COVID-19. But I'll provide updates in the show notes at thelivedrop.com. End of transmission. Transmission.